Hassan Minhaj appeared as a guest on The Ellen Show. You might have seen this episode. Immediately after being introduced, Minhaj, with good humor, uh, corrected Ellen's mispronunciation of his name. And he explained, well, most people actually call him, and maybe you and I do too, Hassan Minhaj. But he carefully told the audience, and Ellen in particular, it's actually pronounced Hassan Minhaj, reflecting his Indian heritage and his Muslim descent. And he quipped, again, with humor, look, if, if, if you can pronounce Ansel Elgort or Timothy Chalamet, look, you can learn to pronounce Hassan Minhaj too. We stumble through a lot of difficult names This is just one more that in respect and honor, we can stumble through and figure out together. He actually added, this is a big deal because my parents are here in the audience. He said, gesturing towards them in the front row. They were, of course, the two people that gave him that name. That moment was a humorous and yet also valuable reminder that our names matter to us. Our names matter to us. And so it shouldn't surprise us, if they matter to us, that they might also, as we discover in the third of the Ten Commandments, that God cares about his name too. Not the proper pronunciation of it itself, but rather how to use it, how to handle his name. As verse 7 in our reading says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But what does that really command? What is this third commandment really getting at? And what I want to do with you in this time that we have is to look at it just in three parts. Uh, This third command, its meaning. Uh, Secondly, its practice. How do we follow it? And then thirdly, its beauty. What what should draw us in? What's attractive about it? It's meaning, it's purpose. I mean, sorry, it's practice and it's beauty. So first of all, it's meaning. What is this commandment all about? What does it mean? Well, let's break it down together. It's different component parts. It's not a long sentence there that we're considering, and it is only one sentence. What does it mean in the Bible to take something in vain? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew expression actually means to carry or to lift up uselessly or emptily. To lift up or carry uselessly or emptily. So to take in vain can have the the sense of just to throw around or to cheapen or to dishonor, in this case, the name of God. It's also worth noting that the wording here is close to what's found later on in the ninth commandment, where it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's the same wording, language that we also find later on in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, which commands, do not spread false report. So taking something in vain can also carry the sense of speaking falsely, of lying. So you shall not dishonor or cheapen God's name or speak lies 
about God's name. So what's in a name? Why this focus on God's name? What makes a name so sacred that not only mere mortals like Hassan Minaj and you and me, but also God himself would insist, even command, that we handle it properly? What's in a name? Well, you know. You can search scripture and you can even just search your own common usage of the concept of a name and the usage of names in your own life and relationships. A name is a label of personal identification, right? Uh, I'm Duke, you're Victor, you're Jean, you're Classe, right? These are labels of personal identification. A name is unique to you. It's personal, and therefore it's intimate. It invites into relationship. A name allows us to address each other. It brings us out of the anonymity of crowds and makes us people. Allowing us to call to each other, to communicate, to enjoy relationship with each other. Which is why in the Bible it was an amazing moment when God revealed to Moses his personal name, his covenant name, which was Yahweh. We find that in Exodus chapter 3. You see, because sharing your name lets someone in. It invites someone in, gives them access, even a kind of power. A name reveals a piece of who you are. A little snippet of the story of your family. It reveals a little bit of your character even, your nature. If not actual, then at least aspirational. It's why people name their babies, their children, after some name, very much paying attention to its meaning, saying, I, I want my child to be conformed to the idea behind this name, grace or truth or light or different aspects, because our name reveals a piece of our character. In God's name, Yahweh means what? I am who I am. He is eternal, he's telling us. He's self-existent. He's timeless, self-sufficient, sovereign. It's a revelation of himself. And in this way, our name also represents your authority. See, the prophet spoke in the name of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And as your name becomes known, it becomes attached to your what? Public reputation. It's the way that people know you. And so we say that someone's making a name for himself. Or we demand, put some respect on my name. When we want someone to be remembered or honored that we're fearful they might be forgotten, we urge, say her name. Right? So all these different ways helps us to understand a little bit of what the Bible is getting at here in this third commandment about this name. A name clearly points to more than just one's literal name. And when God says, don't take my name in vain in the third commandment, we know he's actually referring beyond just the literal name of his, but more broadly to his character his reputation, his authority, his very being. And that's why we find throughout the Bible such soaring references to God's name, like in Psalm 8.1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. 
Or Psalm 115.1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Or the apostles in Acts chapter 3 verse 6 commanded the person as they were healing him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk appealing to the authority of Christ himself. Or the invitation is made in Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remembering not only who he is, but what he has done for us in Christ in his redemption. Call on his name and you will be saved. And Colossians 3.17 says to all those that bear the name of Jesus, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, it's a big idea. It's a comprehensive idea. So we put all these pieces together, and here's what we get. Taking the Lord's name in vain means to speak disrespectfully or untruthfully about God's character, words, or work. Speaking disrespectfully or untruthfully about God's character, words, or works. Or, to put it more positively, the third commandment tells us to show reference to God in every area of our lives, but especially our speech. To show reverence to God, honor to God as he deserves. And... If you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, or if you're familiar with it, you've prayed this command, and you might have not known it, in the opening line, which we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father, what? Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Prayer that God's name would be set apart as holy, as different, as Worthy of our reverence and our awe. But I want to immediately run right into what does this look like in practice. The second point. How do we follow this command? Well, listen up. The Westminster Larger Catechism offers a pretty comprehensive summary. And what I'm about to read is even just an excerpt of all that it actually says. But helpfully, here it is. The third commandment requires... That the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. In other words, don't, not only do we need to treat God's literal name, his name itself, with reverence, to treat it holily, but also to treat that part of his being to which his name points us to and reveals to us, so his character, his nature, his attributes, which means his eternality, his timelessness, his sovereignty, his power, his mercy, his forgiveness, his kindness, his patience, his providence, his loveliness and beauty, all these different aspects of God too should be lifted up and treated with reverence and with care. 
But not only that, also all the means by which God reveals these aspects of who he is, namely his word, his sacraments, his all these works that have unfolded throughout history as recorded in Scripture, and even the providences that unfold around us today, the wonders of God showing up with goodness in your life, that we treat all these things together with awe and reverence and love. Notice how comprehensive even this commandment is intended to be. In fact, it it, it really does cover all of God and all of us, right? That, that we should see and behold all of who he is and then bring ourselves before him. And with all of ourselves, not only our words, but our minds, our hearts, our desires, our bodies, our behaviors, and we bring it to him with reverence and with worship. It's comprehensive. And in that sense, just like the first two commandments, as we saw the last two weeks, We actually can't break any other of the Ten Commandments without first breaking this one. You actually can't break the other commands without also failing to treat God, his name, and all of who he is with reverence as he deserves and commands. I also want to say quickly, don't misunderstand the spirit or the the flavor, as it were, of this commandment. It's not meant to be taken in joylessly. Oh, don't take my name in vain. And we say, all right, right? Not joylessly. It's not a scroogey command. It's not meant to bring us into a stuffy religiosity in the way that we sort of feign reverence with just an uptight, joyless, heartless engagement with God Don't forget, this commandment and all the commandments are different ways that God is teaching us how to obey the great command, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. We are learning how to love God. We're learning how to love his name and all that that represents. We're learning how to enjoy the God of grace and truth. That's the invitation. But what I want to do right now is to focus on a few specific applications. Because I know even what I've said so far can sort of feel broad and sort of reverence. Cool. What does that mean? What does it mean not to trivialize the name of God? What does it mean to actually show respect and honor? What does it mean to honor not only his character and attributes, but also his name itself? And not only that, but also the means by which God reveals himself, including his word and sacraments and prayer and so on and so forth. There's so many ways that we can unpack this. I just want to unpack a few, and I think there are six here. So here we go. We'll find out, right? We'll find out. Listen, here's a few specific, as concrete as I could get to bring some applications to you. Number one, we must strive to make the name of God sweet to us. When you're new in your faith or maybe distant in your faith, oftentimes, literally, when you take the name of God onto your lips, saying even God or saying the name Jesus, saying Lord, saying Holy, it can feel awkward and it can actually sound awkward because you are under practiced i don't say that to condemn or to guilt or to make you self-conscious 
But if you are knowing Christ or getting to know him, put the names of God on your lips so that they become familiar to you. And how do you do that? You pray. Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is sitting in the presence of God. One of the joys of praying with other people is that you actually are invited to pray out loud, join your faith, and to practice together. One of the benefits and blessings of praying out loud and not just in silence is that you get to hear yourself say the name of Jesus, the name of God, the name of the Holy Spirit again and again so it becomes as familiar to you as hearing your own name. Is it for you? Are you praying the name of God, calling him your heavenly father as Jesus taught us to pray, calling out the name of Jesus, asking for the Holy Spirit to be present in your prayers, in your meditation, in your conversations, so that you might yourself begin to sing and rejoice over the words here written by John Newton, the great hymnist, poet, who of course also wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote a great hymn, a great poem called How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. And this is the first stanza. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fear. Will you put into practice, into your prayers, the name of Christ, the name of your Father, the name of the Holy Spirit, so that his name becomes sweet to you, driving out the initial awkwardness and learning how to honor him by loving his name on your lips and on your heart. Second application. We should be watchful of our use of profanity. Okay. Because you can't talk about the third commandment without talking about cussing. Everyone wants to talk about cussing, right? Can we cuss? Can we not cuss? Kids are asking. Everyone wants to know. Let's just talk about it for a second. Okay. It's common, of course, in our culture right now to hear from all corners, I'll say, both from people that do not call themselves Christians as well as those who do, to use words like God or Christ or Jesus Christ as exclamations to express surprise and anger and so forth. Is this okay? And are so-called four-letter words okay? And sometimes the Bible, it's important to note, the Bible does actually use crass language, which in that time of its writing would have been received as a little bit of a profanity. One great example, of course, is great example. One example is Philippians 3, verse 8, when the Apostle Paul is talking about his righteousness being of worthlessness before God, well, he calls all his good works dung. And some scholars would say it's actually a stronger word than just that. But what are we to think of? How are we to sort of govern our, our thoughts around bad words. And my kids and I, we talk about this as they, well, let's be honest, experiment with words or hear words or trying to navigate what are good words and bad words. And this is what we talk about. So I'm just sharing this with you, a couple of principles. Let me throw out four. Number one, God does tell us pretty explicitly beyond this commandment to avoid filthy language. Okay. Ephesians 5, chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 4 says, among you, there should be no obscenity, 
foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So God does have concern for our use of filthy words. The challenge, of course, is determining which words count as that, as being relevant to what the Apostle Paul has written there. God does not anywhere give us a specific list of quote-unquote bad words that we need to avoid. And of course, words that are offensive or acceptable changes depending on cultural context and changes over time. So we need to navigate this together. And whether if it's families with their kids or communities together, thinking through what exactly is the right applications of this avoidance of filthy language and being honest with ourselves and with God. But number two, this is really important. We hurt people most with put-downs. Words that injure or diminish the image of God in each of us. Right? So James 3, 9 says we often curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount even said, look, oh, sure, there's a list out there of bad words here that, but even the person that says, you fool, might be in danger of judgment. In other words, beware of focusing only on avoiding four-letter words or quote-unquote bad words because good words used badly can also be sinful. Because they diminish, again, and injure the image of God, the dignity, the value, the God-radiating nature of a human being. Even acceptable words used hurtfully can be as bad as the baddest words. And that's what we need to reckon with. Jesus emphasized that more than anything. Thirdly, in all of this, just don't cheapen words. Because profanity sometimes is just a lazy use of the human language. And we sort of, instead of actually caring about how we're expressing ourselves, we just whip out a nice zinger in order to express a little bit of what we're feeling or what we're thinking. We are taught by a God of words to use words as though they actually have weight. The power to bless and the power to curse. The power to heal and the power to kill. Words are powerful. Treat them with trembling and awe because they are powerful, powerful instruments in our relationships. But fourthly and lastly, and this is where I just turn into a fundamentalist here, right? Just never, ever use God's name as a cuss word. The name of Jesus should be sweeter to us than honey. And it drives me nuts when people use it as a curse word. And if you've been redeemed by Christ, and if he's your savior and the lover of your soul, and if the God that we speak of is one that you are communing with, as we just talked about earlier, such that his name becomes sweet to you, to see other people or even to hear it from your own lips, a degrading, flippant, and even filthy use of the name of Jesus and the name of God should be among the most offensive things to the Christian soul. The name of Jesus Christ should be sweeter to us than 
honey. I, I, I am telling you, the Bible would rather you drop a hundred F-bombs than treat the name of Jesus like trash. All right, I'm done with cussing. Number three. We, so we must strive to make the name of Jesus, uh, the name of God sweet to us. We should wa- be watchful of our use of profanity. Third, we must honor God's word, the written expression of God's name, even when it offends us. Okay, so how do you show reverence for the name of God? Humble yourself before his words. You see, because according to the Bible, God's word is closely, closely tied to his name. We know who he is, his identity, because he speaks to us. We know how he is to us in saving us because he has told us so with his words. So we honor him when we honor what he says. Close connection between his name and his words. Deuteronomy 28, 58 says this. Carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. So how do you, how do you revere the awesome name of God? Carefully follow and listen to these words in this book. Psalm 138, 2. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Both of them together. Name and word tied together. So, when the Bible says something hard, hang in there. Don't bail out. Assume that it's precisely because God is great, meaning he is beyond human, mere human understanding. And that it's impossible to understand the fullness of what God has said in his scriptures apart from the help of God. That when you stumble across something that makes you stumble, if you stumble across something that's just offensive to you because of the way that the Bible tells you how you're to manage your relationships or what you should or shouldn't be doing with your body or what you should or shouldn't be saying with your mouths, even maybe some of the things I've said already, or how it is that God wants to rescue you or what the consequences might be if you don't receive his rescue. All these things might be offensive to you. Keep hanging in there because God's word is not only authoritative, it promises you life. And so, uh, following this third command, uh, standing before God's words with reverence, before his name with reverence, and not taking them in vain, treating them as empty and worthless and useless, means reading scripture with a readiness to submit and to surrender. Even if initially it confuses you and makes you mad. Will you do that this week? Out of trust or a growing trust for God, your Savior. Remember, those very offensive or hard-to-read words are part of what God calls his words of life. Number four, we must not appeal to God's name and authority for selfish gain. So this is what I mean by that. There is a habit among um, some people uh, to, sometimes with sincere intentions, but to appeal to Scripture, uh, again, sometimes unwittingly or unknowingly, 
in a way that tries to put a stamp of God's authority on just what you just want. Or maybe even using the language God told me to do this or choose that or not do this or not do that. Literally invoking the name of God, right? We're talking about taking the name of God in vain. Invoking the name of God in order to appeal to a higher authority, either to silence those that want to challenge you or to clear the path of resistance so that you can do what you actually just want to do. And the problem with that, of course, is sometimes it's just cowardly not to say, I just want to break up with you. And instead to attempt to cite chapter and verse or the voice of God for a decision that was hard and is hurtful. Sometimes a hard decision of making a big move can be complex and heavy and requires a community-wide system of support and wisdom and gathering together different reads on the will and the direction and guidance and wisdom of God. And, And sometimes it's just easier to clear the way, but also cowardly to say, look, God just told me out of my way. I'm out of here. We also see this in the public sphere as well. Uh, recently in, the, uh, in political discourse and in politics, where people of all different political persuasions cite chapter and verse, I'm not saying always inaccurately, but with the purpose of backing down opponents by wielding God's name as a weapon. Well, here's a verse which tells me why my policy position is right and why yours is wrong, my, my, why my candidate is right and yours is wrong. I'm not saying that Christians can't have strong convictions, and I'm not saying that you can't find some scriptural basis for this. I'm talking about the way that we wield it flippantly, authoritatively, and weaponly. I don't think that's a word, but you get it. Appealing to the name and the authority of God in order to win a political argument, to put down a political opponent, and to feel political superiority against those who see things differently. Christians have been doing this, of course, for centuries. Even using the authority of God to to harm other people and to justify it. That's relevant, of course, to this conversation around reparations the history of enslavement and Jim Crow and the legacy of what's followed after that. Using the authority and the name of God to justify even sinful aims. We must not appeal to God's name and authority for selfish gain. Number five, moving forward, we must not slander or revile Christ's church, but rather learn to love the church. Condemning Christ's church is in. And I say that not acknowledging, let me reword that, I say that acknowledging that there are many mistakes that the church, Christ's church, whether on a local basis, on a national basis, and so on, mistakes that have been made, even grievous evils, and sometimes even not only committing evils, but then sheltering 
and weaving stories and myths in order to protect individuals and churches therein. There is a work of truth-telling that needs to happen. There is a work of repentance that needs to be called out. Yes, and we must humbly do that work. But I think humbly is the key word that God leads us to. We are in the church Christ's progeny, his bride, his family. The church literally bears his name. Again, we're talking about showing reverence for God's name. That also means reverence for his possessions, the chief of which, the most treasured of of which is his people because his church belongs to him. We are the body of, of whom? Christ. A title given to us even explicitly in Scripture, Ephesians 4, 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And 1 Corinthians 1, 2 tells us that the church is none other than that which consists of those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even if truth-telling and correction is warranted, we must do so not with a will to destroy and not with an eagerness to slander leading to contempt and a scornful spirit. But rather, we must love, learn to love the church, and even when correction is needed, to do so with trembling and tears. Sixthly and lastly here, in terms of applications, we must not only strive to make the name of God sweet to us, Be watchful of our use of profanity. Honor God's word, even when it offends us. We must not appeal to God's name and authority for selfish gain. We must not slander or revile Christ's church, but rather love the church which bears Christ's name. Finally, we must bear God's name in our city with suffering love. We are people that not only handle God's name, Christ's name, with our mouths. We handle it with our very being. We are sent into the world to bear good news. We are called ambassadors of Christ, his personal representatives in this world, vessels of his love and truth and grace. And Romans 2.24 tells us the truth that unfortunately too often the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of Christ's people, because of not just our sin, but our prideful engagement with our sin, our unwillingness to repent and receive correction, our unwillingness to humbly walk, desperate for the grace of God. So we're called to bear God's name in the world humbly, with joy and faith and hope, telling better stories than the world can tell, loving more sacrificially than the world is willing to sacrifice, telling harder truths but with tears in our eyes and a humble disposition that makes the truth more winsome and appealing, culminating in people coming and falling down before the name of Christ in belief and in repentance. Number six tells us the story of God giving the Aaronic benediction, which we recite at the end of our service 
Oftentimes, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then right after that, in verse 12, we're told that in giving this blessing, God set his name upon the Israelites as they went forth from his presence. Every time you leave from this place, God sets his name upon you and you bear it before the world. It's the same thing that Jesus commissions us with in Matthew 28 when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Everywhere you go, you are bearing the name of the Father, Son, and spirit. This is our mission, our co-mission. Will you do it with honor? Will you do it pointing all people to God, pointing all people to the humility of the cross and the hope of resurrection? Just a few thoughts there, practically, of how we do this. Let me close with this thought on its beauty, the beauty of the third commandment. Of course, in verse 7, we're told that God will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. We are culpable for our failures to follow this. But of course, there is forgiveness, dear friends, for those who fail to abide by this commandment. If you're already hearing ways that maybe in an instant or in a pattern in your life that your life, your behavior is not in accord with this commandment, you need to know the hope and the good news of God's forgiveness. Even actually based upon the name of Christ, Christ who died for our sins and offers to you his cleansing forgiveness. Peter preached these words in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Bring your name-taking and veining hearts and life and bring them before the throne of God's grace. He will, he does forgive you. But I want to tell you one more thing as we depart that makes this commandment sweet even as we seek ways to revere his name, to lift up the name of Jesus. And it's this. As we lift up Christ's name, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, in reverence and in awe, do you know that the glory of the gospel is that God does not hoard that name for himself, but rather he shares it with you? We're told again and again in Scripture that God places his name upon us. That he actually shares his authority with us. He makes his reputation ours. He builds into our lives the character that's naturally his to become character in our lives that can be supernaturally ours. He gives us the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God has not hoarded his name for himself but has shared his name with you. And that means this. The more that you exalt the name 
of God, the more that you lift it up, the more you treat it with reverence and awe, the more you begin to see the amazing power, the shocking, stunning power of this gospel that says that God has shared himself with you. That God has given his name to overwrite your name, to give you a new identity and a new hope, to give you resurrection power and life, to bring you into his named family, to give you not only forgiveness, but a new identity, one that's marked by a crown of life that you would be called the son of a king, the daughter of a king. This is who you are. So the higher up you see him, the higher up you see the glory of what God has drawn you up into in his gospel. The more you exalt his name, the more we elevate ourselves and the wonder of his love, which cannot be measured even by the highest heights of heaven, says the psalmist. This is good news. This is beautiful. Do you see? This is not just a commandment that's calling us to revere God. This is a commandment through which we can learn to see the wonders and the beauties of the love of God in Christ. God is that high, and we are this low, and God loves us through it all and brings us into his family by his name. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the pattern and the practices that God lays before us? Do you understand its meaning? We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's help to abide by these things. Let's pray together that he'll give us just that. Jesus, this is for you. (laughs) Even learning to uh, not take your name in vain, but to revere your name is, is, uh, obviously it's for your glory. It's for the sake of your name. And so we're asking for you to do this for yourself, but also do this for our good. Come near to your people. Come help us. Glorify yourself in our midst. Receive all praise from us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.